This is episode 21 of What's the Deal, Gross Eel, the podcast exploring the people, places, history, and events that make Gross Eel unique. I'm your host, Ben Fote. Now, I don't know about you, but the river and the Great Lakes fascinate me. There's something about how they alternate between perfectly smooth and violently turbulent. Sometimes they seem like an escape from the daily grind, and sometimes they remind you of just how industrious our region is. Over the centuries that people have left their marks on Grosseal and all of Michigan, we know that the inland seas have taken lives. Now we can't prevent all those losses, but since the Europeans moved west into North America, people have built beacons and changed the landscape to accommodate marine transportation. My guest today has written about this in his book, Mastering the Inland Seas. Dr. Ted Karmansky has provided an approachable account of how this massive, dangerous resource has been tamed with lighthouses, beacons, channels, locks, and maps. Well, this school year, I've spent a lot of time looking at the Detroit River from the Grossiel Middle School, waiting for my kids to be let out. And as you know, a prominent feature there are these distinct little lighthouse beacons between the north and southbound lanes of the Livingstone Channel. The first time I noticed them was when I took my kids to wait for the Viking longboat to pass on the island as part of that 2016 Tall Ship Festival. My guest today is Dr. Ted Karmansky. Uh, Dr. Karmansky's book, Mastering the Inland Seas, talks about the history of travel and commerce on the Great Lakes from archaic people to today and the impact that that's had far from shore. And so I'm, I'm glad you've joined me today from Chicago, Professor. Very happy to be here. So I was looking at your books, and, and I was just amazed. You've written about all sorts of things. You've written about the history of roofing, and you've written about how Chicago experienced the Civil War, among many other historical areas. So what inspired you to write about the navigation on the Great Lakes? Well, um, I kind of got hoodwinked in the maritime history back in the 1980s when some of my graduate students were doing projects for a group that wanted to create a maritime museum in Chicago. And I ended up staying involved and they would always call me, well, he's our, he's our maritime historian. And I kept saying, no, no, I'm an historian. <laughs> Not a marit- I don't know anything about maritime history. <laughs> uh, but that was in the 80s. And over time, you know, I actually learned a few things. <laughs> and so by the time, you know, we get to the 21st century, I was doing some work in that, in that field. And the National Park Service came up with a project. They needed someone, because as you know, Most of the lighthouses on the American side of the Great Lakes have been gradually decommissioned, Mm -hmm. and there's a process of privatizing those uh, light towers. But the National Park Service wanted to, while that was going on, determine should any Great Lakes lighthouses be national historic landmarks that are not. There are two already that are, but should there be others? And But they wanted to look at lighthouses from a broad perspective how the lighthouses might fit into the the broader history of the United States. So I got a project with them. I mean, it was a contract for two years. I went out and visited tons of lighthouses all across the Great Lakes region, you know, looked at them, looked at their physical condition, studied the history of them, and uh, ended up doing a report for the government. But, you know, these reports... It's like Indiana Jones, if you remember the last scene. <laughs> sure. You know, everything goes into some giant warehouse or now some internet archive, uh, and it's hard for people to access. So I wanted to take some of the things that I found out about while doing the government study 
and put them in a more accessible format for folks. And you've done that for sure. That's that's really neat. So the book starts with the first people that navigated the Great Lakes in canoes. How did they make traveling on the water safe? Well, a couple of ways. One was Native people believe, of course, that all things have a spirit. And so we would dismiss what European Americans dismiss as inanimate objects, nonetheless have a spirit. Something like the Detroit River or the, any of the Great Lakes, it's easy for even us to imagine that they have a spirit sure, uh, because of their turbulent and sometimes changeable nature or placid surface. And so one way to achieve safe navigation was to make sure that you were right with the spirits of the water. And so sprinkling some tobacco upon the waves before embarking on a long journey would be a way of showing respect to a power greater than yourself and to recognize that. Other ways is stories were a way to go ahead and practice safe navigation. And it was a way to go ahead and point out landmarks by which you could navigate or places that you should avoid through stories. And so uh, in these ways, Native people who, of course, navigated the Great Lakes for thousands and thousands of years found a way to live, I won't say, well, to some in somewhat in harmony with the Great Lakes environment. So then also, I think you mentioned that, that they wouldn't go too far from shore. They would try to keep sight of shore. Is that how they, they stayed? To some extent. You know, of course, Native people made long journeys mm-hmm. uh, to places like uh, Isle Royal, you know, the Manitou Islands, the Erie Islands. Uh, you know, you have to go pretty, you're not out of sight of land, but mm-hmm. you're pretty far from land. Sure. And sometimes when you're making a longer journey like that, you would practice safe navigation. I mean, it's not something you'd start in the late afternoon <laughs> when the winds are up. <laughs> you might do it in the pre-dawn hours. Sure. But they also might make a larger sacrifice. Uh, there's early accounts of Native people sometimes tying the legs of a dog and tossing the dog into the water hmm. to make a live sacrifice before a really dangerous passage. Hmm. And I remember you, you telling about uh, a distance called a pipe. So this is when the voyageur, the French voyageurs are going ahead and really propelling the penetration of capitalism for the first time into the Great Lakes region. And the voyageurs would canoe pretty much all day from five o'clock in the morning uh, till dusk and taking only breaks every 10 maybe miles and they would that distance would be called a pipe and the guides who traveled this way on a regular basis they kind of knew where these rest spots were sometimes they would just simply stay in the canoe and, and smoke their clay pipes or if it was for lunch they would come ashore and use some dried peas and pemmican uh, to make a mushy stew to sustain uh, the paddlers. All right. So to zoom in then on on Gross Eel and the Detroit River, we've got a great view of the Livingstone Channel out on our east side. And before I dug into the way that freighter traffic's routed through the river, I always assumed that the, the river was just the same shore to shore, that it sort of basined out and was, was uh, pretty much smooth across there. But it definitely isn't. Maybe it was at one time. But that that's really the Livingstone Channel at work there. 
So what is the Livingstone Channel and what problem did it solve for that to get carved out? Well, the, the main problem that it solved was in the late 19th century, you begin to go ahead and make the transition from wooden shipping to steel shipping. And as you move into steel ships, you're talking about increasingly larger size. And also the volume by the late 19th century of shipping is just tremendous on the Great. I mean, the, the Detroit River Passage from Huron to Erie is one of the busiest waterways by far in the entire world. I mean, more shipping going through there than ever would go into a city, you know, a great city like London, for example, in England. And so what they were concerned about was ships colliding with each other. And so they wanted to create a situation where you could have an upbound channel and a downbound channel, which keep the ships that were leaving uh, Huron and heading to Erie going on one side of the river and ships heading from Erie up into Lake Huron on the other side. And to do that, they needed a wider navigation channel. And when you get over near the Canadian shore there around Amherstburg, the bottom of the lake was solid rock. And that was made for very dangerous navigation as the ships got larger. So uh, it was a tremendous project by the United States Corps of Engineers to build a gigantic coffer dam to really uh, go ahead and uh, hold back the Detroit River, a large section of the Detroit River, pump out all the water that was in the dammed area, and then blast away at that hard igneous rock to, to carve out the Livingston Channel. The crazy thing is that this was all in Canada. Right. It was the United States Corps of Engineers. Uh, the Canadians, of course, they're always happy if we can spend money for them. Sure. Uh, and we've got them building the Gordie Howe Bridge now. So <laughs> is this going to pay us back? <laughs> I guess. The, uh, so cofferdams, I think the, the way most people these days are familiar with cofferdams is if they watch uh, the, the, uh, the, the Secret of Oak Island. They build a cofferdam to, to search underwater for some things there. But on the island, I believe that, that pretty soon we're going to have a, a cofferdam erected around the piers of our, of our county bridge that's been closed for a year. And that the, um, it will. So they'll build that cofferdam to, to go down to around the base of those piers to reconstruct those, um, however it is that the engineers are going to do that. So we'll see a lot of cofferdams from the island here pretty soon. That's pretty interesting. So some interesting things we can see from the channel are these little mini lighthouses um, that mark that mark the middle. And we, we talked about that before we started the interview. And, and so we'll have to do some more digging on those. But are there are there other parts of the Great Lakes that have a channel similar to that Livingstone Channel? Oh uh, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the Livingston Channel, in terms of its size, yeah, its depth, uh, is fairly unique. Now, there has been a lot of navigation improvements also along the St. Mary's River, and that's another waterway like the Detroit River that we have to share with Canada, and which leads, you know, to one of the other great navigation choke points on the Great Lakes, the, the Sault Ste. Marie locks. Sure. I guess the, the most similar then would be the locks as, as far as major construction efforts. Um, well, I, I guess uh, they did the same. They did something similar to, as I think about it, Livingston Channel, right after the Civil War, leading in the St. Clair Flats. Okay. Because the water was very shallow there. 
and the channel was very narrow uh, and shifting. You know, it's kind of sandy and the channel would shift and it was a lot of ships would get stranded there. So the Corps of Engineers dug out a, basically made a canal and put some lights on, on the top, like you were talking about with Livingston Channel. And then that whole project was redone in the 20th century too. Okay. And and mentioning just canals, that that was another big project that would have happened well, 100 years before that channel was was dug, but but the canals um had a short life because they they stopped being used when the trains went through. Has have trains did trains impact the the Great Lakes shipping as much as it did the canals? Well, the canals were I mean, and you got to talk about which canal you're talking about. Sure. So like the Illinois Michigan Canal was pretty successful, even though though you can find books that say exactly what you just said. Well, as soon as the railroad came in, the canal was no good. Sure. Well, what's not that in the case of that canal, that wasn't true. In the case of the Indiana Wabash, Wabash. canoe, yeah, Wabash, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was a disaster from word go. Sure. Um, but when well, I think the Ohio Erie Canal had flooding that that tore it apart, so. Mm. And so. yeah, and that certainly is a is a recurring problem, even in the with the Erie Canal. Uh, sure. Now had here's flat floods that would wipe out sections. Yeah, and and as I remember my my uh, Greenfield Village history, uh, the reason that Thomas Edison ended up in Port Huron is because the the canal that that was in um, his hometown. In um, I'll have to remember that one before I go back next month, uh, but. His hometown um, in Ohio uh, flooded and the canal got destroyed and his father had to move and find labor somewhere else. And so they moved up to Port Huron where he put his his uh, labor to work. And so that's how we get Thomas Edison up there. And if he hadn't ended up on the, the Grand Trunk Railroad, we probably wouldn't have all the things he brought us. So <laughs> that's a an interesting part of, of the canals there. Yeah, right. So now but, one of the other things that, that – Islanders would have would have realized uh, would would have noticed from from the the channel over there is that back a, a couple months ago we had a, a ship called the Harvest Spirit. It got stuck in a place in the maps called the Hole in the Wall, which is sort of a, a cutout in in the channel there. So how did how did ship pilots before we had all this uh, electronic GPS and and those sorts of things? How did they avoid obstacles like that? <laughs> Sometimes they didn't. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, you know, it was pretty tricky business navigating the Great Lakes. Uh, and uh, so much of it in the period before the Civil War was uncharted and uh, uh, with limited navigational aids. And, you know, it was pretty dangerous business. I mean, uh, that recent uh, ship grounding, which then was like bottlenecked the whole Detroit River. Oh, sure. Shut down the Midwest economy for a bit there. Yeah, a um, couple days. That was, you know, it must have been pretty mortifying to have something like that happen, you know, with all of the electronic aids to navigation you've got going today. And I believe they still have Detroit River pilots. They sure do. Who should be preventing that sort of thing <laughs> from happening. <laughs> we learned about, a lot about that when the Viking ship went through for the Tall Ship Festival. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if, if that news uh, made it to Chicago. I know the, the Viking ship did. But one of their problems was they sailed across, uh, they sailed across the Atlantic, in this in this recreated Viking ship. And when they got to uh, when they got to the Great Lakes, they needed a pilot. They didn't realize they had to pay a pilot mm -hmm. 
And what went along with that was just how much a Great Lakes, a Great Lakes ship pilot uh, gets paid. And it is a lot of money. <laughs> but it's regulated by the Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard sets the, the value of, of those jobs. So I uh, immediately tried to find out what I needed to do to get my kids to become those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it sure sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it should so, be a major at Michigan State or something, huh? It, it should be. It should be. Um, I, I think the easiest way is to join, join the Coast Guard. Hmm. Coast Guard will give you all the training you need to do that. So for any future notes on that, join hmm. the Coast Guard. Now, you talked about how... You talked about how the original people, the the natives from our area, told the stories of of navigating the Great Lakes and and that through their stories, and of course that brings up a, a memory for me. I think one of the ways that that people these days learn the most about how dangerous the Great Lakes are is from Gordon Lightfoot's song, hmm. and you've got a story about that in the in the afterward of your book. Do you mind reading from that for a little bit? Yeah, no, it it kind of gets to like. I always like to tell the reader at some point, like, why did you, why did you write this book? <laughs> sure. Uh, in May 1976, I attended a concert by the Canadian folk singer Gordon Lightfoot at Chicago's Auditorium Theater. To the disappointment of many in the audience who wanted to hear Gordon Lightfoot sing some of his best-known ballads, he went through the playlist of his latest album, which was titled Summertime Dream. However, he paused before starting one of the new songs. The folk singer was famously crotchety with uh, reporters and occasionally audiences, as on this occasion. Sensing the restlessness among his fans, Lightfoot launched into a lecture, berating Chicagoans for living on the shores of the Great Lakes and not knowing anything about their nature or their history. He pointed out that just the year before, the November gale had destroyed a giant lake freighter. All hands had been lost Yet the tragedy barely received a ripple of public attention. Those lakes are part of your heritage, he said. And then he began to sing, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Lightfoot's song became a phenomenon. It stimulated renewed awareness in the lakes and the Midwest region's maritime heritage. It spawned television documentaries, museum exhibits, plays, even a beer. The Great Lakes Brewing Company's Edmund Fitzgerald Porter. It's a good one. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald burst on the scene at a time when the lakes were just beginning to mount a recovery from industrial pollution, mismanagement, and the first wave of invasive species. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Great Lakes beaches were beset with waves of dead fish washing ashore. The invasive sea lamprey destroyed the natural food chain in the lakes, which let populations of silvery little alewives grow exponentially, only to be washed ashore uh, dead. Uh, in fact, in 1967, six billion of the herring-like little fish uh, washed ashore on Lake Michigan beaches alone. The smell of rotting fish or giant algae blooms spawned by uh, phosphate pollution, kept thousands of people away from the region's beaches and harbors. By 1976, when the song was released, the introduction of salmon by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources to attack the alewives and regulations brought about by the 1972 Clean Water Act began to make the lakeshore once more a desirable place to recreate. 
There was a boom in resort development along the lakes and a surge in regional voting. During these same years, foreign competition wreaked havoc on the region's industrial economy. Lightfoot Song paid tribute to blue collar crews that worked the lakes, while its mournful dirge-like melody memorialized a way of life that was, if not disappearing entirely, certainly being eclipsed. That's, that's wonderful. And I think, I think uh, we're still in the, in the effects of that, that movement. Um, as the Detroit River gets cleaned up and, and we uh, start appreciating the, the natural wonder around us more and more, the, the fishing is coming back in, in huge sw- uh, swings. Actually, that's going to start here in a couple weeks. We'll have thousands of fishermen come from all over the country to catch the, the walleye run. So, uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, talk about the Livingston Channel out your back door. That, you know, was a fantastic improvement for navigation purposes. I mean, it's critical even today, but it really destroyed a marvelous whitefish fishery in the Detroit River. Sure, absolutely. The, uh, well, and, and uh, there were a lot of other things happening at the time that didn't do any good for us either. So, But hopefully we're, we're turning that. We're turning that. We, we talked earlier with John Hardig from the Detroit International Wildlife or the Detroit River International Wildlife Refuge and talked about that. And we'll, we'll talk with them a little bit more here in a, in a few more episodes. I really want to thank you for sharing all this with me today. And I've learned a lot from our conversation and from the book. And I definitely recommend it. We'll have links to all that to do that. And, and I'll especially recommend it for anybody who's listening that likes to go down and watch the ships float by in the fog. I always find that to be one of the most amazing things is to watch the ships uh, sort of in the morning when the fog's still there and the ships float by. It's like a skyscraper just passing you by. It's, it's really amazing. So do you have any more books that you're anticipating coming out? Well, I'm about halfway through a book on the sort of environmental and social history of Lake Michigan. Wow. And um, everything else after that's just speculative. <laughs> and we talked before that COVID and, and the pandemic has really has really uh, changed the environment for, for book publishing, that's for sure. And so we should see an end to that and maybe see some more uptick in, in uh, that. But I think a lot more people are reading, too. Uh, when you're stuck at home and you <laughs> can't can't bear to turn on Netflix one more time. Maybe you'll pick up a book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so usually my interviews end with, with me asking the guest uh, to make a wish for a community of the region. You can make it for all the Great Lakes if you'd like, but if you could have a wish granted, what would it be? You know, you folks in Detroit got a marvelous maritime museum, the Dosen Museum. We do. And, you know, across the whole region, we've been, we're lucky to have these small little museums that kind of fight a losing battle against the antipathy uh, of uh, the apathy, excuse me, of some people in the public. So my wish would be that the people of the Great Lakes region take an opportunity to learn something about the history of the region. Because I think the more we know about this place that we live, the better job we'll do taking care of it in the future. I agree agree entirely. Well, thank you so much. And I want you to know that I appreciate you and I appreciate all the people who help us contextualize the importance of events and tools that we so often overlook. You're welcome. 
Dr. Karamansky and I spoke before the NCAA men's basketball tournament began, and since then, Loyola, where he teaches, has once again upset the seeding to join the Sweet 16 in Indianapolis. Will we see the Ramblers navigate themselves into the Final Four or a national championship? We'll find out very soon. They're the second highest seed remaining in the Midwest region. I wish them well, especially since Purdue took an early exit. Episode 22 is shaping up to be quite a revelation. Make sure to listen next Thursday for some interesting developments. And if you want to hear more behind the scenes and get some early access to shows and upcoming events, join the Facebook group. Links are in the episode notes. What's the Deal Gross Eel is recorded and produced by me, Ben Fote. You can keep in touch with me through the What's the Deal Gross Eel Facebook page or email me at whatsthedealgi at gmail.com. You can share episodes from Facebook or hear them from the website, whatsthedealgi.com. And of course, it never hurts to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes through your favorite podcast delivery tool, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so many others. Our intro and credit music is Mocktails in the Rain by Anti Ludo, which is used through a Creative Commons license. Find more of his music on soundclick.com as Anti's Instrumentals. Thanks for listening to... What's the deal, Grosiel? <laughs>